0: So I'm pleased uh, this morning to continue with a series of talks and explorations on the roots of our practice, which um, in large part has been supported by the the interest of this group and wanting to know more about why we practice what we do, what some of our um, lineages are that we're connected to, um, how we've really um, come to the core practices that we do. In May, I gave two talks on the, particularly on the Burmese roots of our practice, and particularly focusing on the rather um, curious circumstances whereby the impact of British colonialism led to uh, radical changes within uh, Burmese Buddhism which led, in turn, to a uh, popularization of meditation and development of new forms in Burma, such as the intensive retreat, which were experienced by a number of the founding Western teachers and brought back to the U.S. And both some of the forms that we use, such as the intensive retreat, typically of... Now we do it of, you know, most commonly five to nine or ten days. And the actual practices of um, mindfulness uh, coming out of that context of Burma. And so, in, in a very real way, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing without British colonialism. <laughs> it's quite, quite peculiar. Um, for, for better or worse, I'm not, uh, you know, it's, it's complex. But the, so the historical uh, developments are quite interesting. And today, and next time, I want to particularly focus on the Thai roots, the roots in, particularly in the Thai forest tradition, uh, for our practice. And a lot of my interest in looking at the uh, historical roots has been to have greater perspective. I mean, ideally, knowing history helps us have perspective, helps us see how certain um, forms came to develop, how certain conditions influenced other conditions, very much in the spirit of uh, Buddhism, Buddhist wisdom training, to understand how conditions impact other conditions, how one thing leads to another. Uh, but partly also to highlight some core issues about our practice. You know, and in looking at the Burmese and Thai roots of our practice, it becomes uh, clear uh, that a number of issues come in, become highlighted, such as um, what are the forms of practice that we use? Do we emphasize retreats? Do we emphasize daily life practice? Is it practice on our own? Is it practice within a community? How much is there a community emphasis? Um, what's the relationship of uh, meditation to other aspects of training, particularly uh, ethical training and training in wisdom? Is meditation at the center, or is it part of an integrated training? You know, we can see that you know there have been certain decisions made. We could also look at what's the role of the monastic tradition, how does that in- impact on what we're doing? You know, for example, the, the dana system certainly is very much impacted by the monastic tradition. Although, the way we do it here is also innovative. It has some resemblance to what's going on for 2,500 years, but the form is an innovation. And so, what's our relationship to the monastic practice? How do we work with... Um, approaches, which, which are primarily come out of monastic traditions when we are lay people. How do we make that translation? What are the issues uh, about that, uh, about that uh, transition? Um, you know, as we'll see in looking at the Thai forest tradition, there are also issues that come up of what's, to what extent is practice rooted in embeddedness in the natural world. Right. In the Thai forest tradition, that's very much the case. And what happens as the environment is changing? A big issue in Thailand, where from 1920 to about 1990, 80% of the forests were cut down. Right. Uh, and I'll come back to that, but it, it actually made some of the lifestyle of the early, for, earlier forest tradition actually impossible. Yeah. And they had to... We're the tradition of wandering monks. And so, uh, but there was a strong connection between practice and the connection with what we call the natural world, right? So that's another issue. What's our connection to that? Do we just meditate in our apartments? Is there a connection with the natural world? What's, you know, so there are issues there. There are issues, as we'll see, about what the role of women are. You know, most of the people that all have on the, you know, that I'll show images of, will be men. You know, and there are different different issues there. Some of them are uh, more recent. You know, know, in the Thai forest tradition, there have historically been a significant number of uh, women practitioners. You know, and... um, and there are a few books on that, but, uh, you know, it's a, in terms of the um, politics of Thai Buddhism, with this, what happened in the 20th century in Thailand was that uh, the, the government became more and more centralized and they had a sense of what was appropriate Buddhism, and a lot of politics came into play, we would say. And, uh, you know, I, I've been at meetings in Thailand where, uh, you know, we where there were passionate wishes to bring back the order of the nuns in Thailand, which, which in, in Theravada tradition, the order of the nuns um, really ended about in the 14th century. And so there were a lot of issues there. And a number of people want to bring back, um, bring back that order, but a lot of the central authorities have not wanted to go there. More conservative, so a lot of issues there, those are, those are part of part of the background there. But you'll see that those issues aren't there in the same way with the Thai forest tradition, which in many ways comes up against the twentieth century. Right? so it's it's interesting. and so it raises larger questions what's the relationship of our practice to larger social developments? Big issue for for us, right? How do we relate to larger social developments? Is meditation just a matter of having private peace in a privileged environment as the world burns whereas things change you know, a, I'm saying that more provocatively but it's, a, it's an important question and I know we've we often look at that you know on these Wednesday mornings so you can see that there that actually looking at the roots of uh, our practice in Burmese and Thai traditions actually can bring up can highlight, I know for myself, it's, it's actually been, uh, things have become a little clearer, you know, looking at this transition, and I've, I personally have really enjoyed uh, immersing myself in the material and the history I've learned a lot. It's really fascinating, and you may, you may want to do that yourself. I'll, I'll indicate certain resources which are available for, for, you, to, for you to do that. So here we have uh, contemporary Thailand, and uh, how many people have been to Thailand? Wow, so about a, looks like a, a quarter, a third uh, of the group. So this is, this is contemporary Thailand, and the, the centralization of the government, really, and, uh, and of the country, uh, really started happening at the end of the 19th century and the end of the 20th century. Uh, And I'll I'll talk more about that. Um, Prior to that time, uh, we may think of Thailand as a unified country with one language, but actually, before the 20th century, that really wasn't the case. I think there were up to 80 languages that were spoken. And in fact, most of the uh, representatives of the Thai forest tradition come from the Northeast. Places you can see uh, around Udon Tami in the upper right. Um, uh, closer to Laos, and the main language that they spoke was actually Lao. And there were, um, there were a lot of forceful attempts by the central government in Bangkok to actually impose language and make changes. And that, a lot of those occurred in the 20th century. So it, it's not, uh, it was much more uh, decentralized you could have wandering monks, a long tradition of wandering monks, going all around the country. When the forest started getting cut down, that was, that was a problem. And the wandering monks actually became a problem. Some of them were even jailed. (laughs) You know, uh, they were, you know, and of course the forests weren't available in the same way. So what happened, I'm getting a little ahead of my story, but what happened by the 1950s, the tradition of wandering monks going through the forests had uh, ended. People lived in the forest, but they were generally settling down in monasteries. And, and most of the experience of, uh, well, almost all the experience of Westerners who have gone to Thailand to practice has been staying at monasteries. But I'll, I'll say more about that tradition of wandering. So, he, uh, so get a good look at the map, because you'll, I'll bring up different... Um, So you can see that Bangkok is down, more or less, in the center of the country. Uh, A little bit north of Bangkok is Ayutthaya, which which I'll have some images of in a few moments, which was the capital of the uh, ancient kingdom of Thailand. There was a unification of the country to some extent that occurred um, in the 14th century and went up to the mid-18th century, and Ayutthaya was the capital of the country. Wasn't Bangkok. And I'll have some images of some of, of some of that place. But again, most of what we'll look at occurs in the northeast of the country, which is uh, sometimes called Isan. And um, I'll say a little bit at times, I've, I've made some short trips and gone to monasteries in Thailand. I've been in monasteries in Udon Thani uh, near Chiang Mai and also in the south. Uh, down near Malaysia uh, with um, a teacher named Achan Buddha Dasa, who I'll probably talk a little bit more about next time. Okay, so remember the map. So I'll just show a few images of uh, Thai Buddhism here and get a sense of um, Thailand is mostly a Buddhist country. It's still, there still is... um, considerable presence of the indigenous traditions, you know, which are or, uh, were organized around spirit worship. And there is, a, even now if you go to most Thai houses, there is a spirit house. For those of you who have been to Thailand know that, where one actually feeds the spirits and takes care of them and so forth. And so there are aspects of the indigenous traditions which are still there. Some of the great teachers also were influenced by indigenous traditions, uh, had what we would call shamanic training. People like a Jumnian, who often would come to Spirit Rock, who's in his 70s now, was trained in traditional shamanic healing techniques. And so there's some, some of the teachers have that in their background as well. There's, There's some intermixing of the Buddhist and the indigenous traditions. And again, again, the aspects of the indigenous tradition are uh, present in in Thai culture, you know, have have stayed. Um, So Buddhism apparently from historians started coming to... This is another... This is like an 80-foot Buddha. This is actually... Some of these pictures are my own... These are my own pictures, actually. Um, This is an 80-foot reclining Buddha in Bangkok. So Thailand... uh, uh, or what we call Thailand uh, uh, started to have uh, persons coming from India around the third century of before the Common Era, we would say BCE. Uh, and that was the particularly what we would call the Theravada tradition, which is the dominant tradition now, and we have roots in that. That literally means the, the tradition or the way of the elders. And that is the dominant form of Buddhism in Sri Lanka, Uh, Burma, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and so forth. What's in Vietnam? Vietnam is a kind of a mix of Mahayana, and and with a strong Theravada influence, but they would call themselves Mahayana. Someone like Thich Nhat Hanh, for example, has very much the flavor of the mindfulness approach of Theravada, but it's, you know, technically he's a Zen teacher, Mm -hmm. right? You wouldn't know that so much from reading his books. You know, it's very different from Japanese Zen. So there's, I think there's a mix there. And as you can see, Vietnam is very close to, uh, to the northeast of Thailand. In fact, uh, Hanoi and even Saigon are much closer to northeast Thailand than Bangkok is. Yeah. So during the 1960s, um, again, a little ahead of my story, there was a... US Air Force base <laughs> one of the first uh, ways that some of the Thai teachers met Americans was being aware of the air force bases there was an air force base in the northeast near the near the monastery with 15,000 personnel yeah. and later they actually used some of the um, metal from discarded metal from the air force base to, for monastery bells <laughs> okay. so Okay, so um, there, were, there were waves of movement of Buddhism into Thailand. So there also were influences of Mahayana. There were Mahayana influences and practitioners in, in Thailand that were quite strong, I think, up until about the 14th century. Uh, so Mahayana would be, would be, we've gone over that some, would be the emphasis on the Bodhisattva. It'd be, those are the forms of... Buddhism that are uh, dominant, we sometimes call it northern Buddhism, Tibet, China, Korea, Japan. Emphasis on the Bodhisattva, A little more emphasis on lay practice, practitioner for non-monastics, and some some different, uh, somewhat different teachings. But, you know, the core teachings are arguably, arguably the same. Uh, also, were are uh, influenced by forms of Buddhism coming from, from Sri Lanka. Okay, so here I'll show you some other images, just to get a sense of the art and the the beauty. (coughs) Here's, this is, uh, I think, I imagine this is 19th century, I'm not sure. This is uh, in Bangkok. um, And in the background is uh, uh, Wat Arun. It's called the Temple of the Dawn. It's a very, very beautiful... uh, structure. I'll show you another image of that. You can actually climb up, uh, climb up quite far on the structure. So here's, here are some images from the capital to give you a sense of uh, historical Buddhism from, uh, and the influence. Okay, now I want to uh, now switch gears, and I'll, I'll give a little bit of history of the Thai forest tradition. And then I want to do that uh, on the brief side, and then um, spend a good chunk of time talking about the core teachings. Because I'm, you know, the interest here is ultimately about what informs and supports our practice. You know, and the history is helpful and, and fascinating and interesting, but... It's really like what um, what does this really offer for our practice, and that's where I'll be focusing. You know, in, and I'll be focusing um, the last part of today, and then almost the entire time next time. You know, but I'll, I like to show the images just to get a sense of the history. So we don't have a lot of record of the Thai forest tradition before the 19th century, before the late 19th century. But and some people think that it was actually uh, there, there weren't so many um, wandering forest monks at that time, but I think the people the scholars that I read actually think that the tradition kept on going. there were ebbs and flows, but that that the the uh, current uh, or the late 19th century and 20th century uh, great forest teachers did have a kind of lineage that they came from you know again that people have different views on that but the ones that I've read think that that was likely, but there's not much historical record of it. We don't have, you know, they didn't do a lot of writings, for example. We don't have a lot of texts like you might have in, you know, in Zen or Tibetan tradition. You know, there were always texts, so you could really trace, you know, trace a lineage back. And it, these were much more uh, in the forest, not doing a lot of writing, you know, more... Um, we would say more experiential in many ways. So again, before the 20th century, everything was very decentralized. It was possible for groups of monks and uh, uh, nuns uh, uh, of certain... um, There were not full nuns because of what I mentioned before, but there were women who could take on a certain kind of ordination as what are called mechis, which are a lesser ordination, but it's still a monastic form. And they would also sometimes be wandering in the forest and be practicing all the time. And so there was that possibility. That the forests were vast. They were not always very hospitable. There were tigers. There were lots of animals. There were a lot of poisonous snakes. Even, you know, I, I stayed at monasteries in the 1990s. And I had to... Uh, I stayed at near at, at a you know, a few, but one I remember particularly at Chan Buddha Dasa's monastery down near Malaysia, you know, woke up at 3.30, was in the dark for, you know, every day at that time, had to walk through the forest, and um, one had to be careful for these small poisonous snakes that were about a foot or two long, which if they bit you, it was kind of, that was it. <laughs> so you had to track that, so you can imagine what it's like and. The night, late 19th century, early part of the 20th century, they had to work with that. There was malaria. It was not always an easy life, right? And so there were, there were these uh, wandering monks, and they, they were called uh, tudong monks. Um, I think Dong means forest, and I'm, I'm not sure what Tu means. Maybe through the forest, something like that. And they 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 were uh, we would say uh, taking on ascetic precepts. they would have one meal a day, and even in the monasteries of the forest tradition now, one takes one meal a day and um, but there there's kind of a snack in the afternoon <laughs> a small snack you know and they might have uh, tea and maybe a little bit of chocolate, maybe something like that and 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 people get used to it. When I, when I did that myself, um, you know, uh, personal story, I mean, I was surprised how much people could eat in one meal. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you get used to it, right? You, you, you know, one adjust around every condition, right? <laughs> so, um, that, w- that was interesting. But they would have one, the condition was one meal a day. They would wander uh, they would, uh, the wandering monks would sleep outside, either in the forest or in a cemetery. Uh, they had very few possessions. And they uh, focused a lot on uh, meditation. They focused on, on the core teachings. So, I'll show you the images of some of the great early teachers. And these are all really in our lineage, the, the two really original teachers are named Achan Sao and Achan Moon. And uh, Achan, again, just means teacher. And so here is an image of Achan Sao. Again, this is in the northeast of the country. And Achan Sao was one of the great forest teachers and was the teacher of the person who is generally credited with being the source of the lineage of, of... the later teachers, including Achan Cha, Jack Cornfield's teacher, teacher of other Westerners, direct lineage with Spirit Rock. Right? Okay? And Acha, Achan Sao, well, here's another image of him. He was the teacher of Achan Moon. And the first practice that he taught him was the same practice that we did right at the beginning of our session at 9 o'clock. He taught him how to be with the breath and say, Budo. So that was the same practice that that we did this morning. And Achan Moon was kind of a a, a legendary, uh, and almost, uh, you can almost get a sense, he was a fierce practitioner. (laughs) He wandered through the forest for years and years, would, you know, sometimes would be in Burma. You know, there there weren't border signs (laughs) in the forest, right? And he was, he was a very, um, very powerful practitioner. He became a monk at age 15, um, disrobed. So most of, the, most of these forest monks came from families that were doing farming. And so he was a monk at 15, and then a few years later, the family had need for him in the fields. He went back and helped in the fields. Uh, and at 23, he became a monk again. He was, before he became a monk, he was an amateur singer. <laughs> <laughs> so there is, there is an interesting background. I mean, they sometimes seem austere, right? But there is interesting, interesting history. There's another image of uh, Achan Moon a little li- later in his life. Um, at the time when he was learning in the first part of the 20th century, there wasn't so much interest in meditation. A lot of the attempts at centralization coming from Bangkok actually emphasized study and more ritual. And meditation was not such a, a widespread interest. And the forest monks really kept this going in many ways. Um, so a few few words from Achan Moon. He was the teacher of Achan Cha, even though Achan Cha just stayed with him a few days. But he was a teacher, there's a, he was a teacher of most of the great representatives of the forest tradition of the 20th century. And there's a book that you can get uh, written by one of his uh, disciples, which is The, the Life of um, Achan Moon. And it's available in a few editions, and it's often available here as a Donna book. So we can look out for it. We have a lot, we often get here, uh, books from the Thai forest tradition that you can, that you can get. So there's a pretty amazing um, biography of him, which I've read a few times. He would wander through, I'll just say a little bit of the aspects of his practice. It is customary for um, wandering monks to to go forth seeking places of seclusion in remote areas in order to devote themselves entirely to the eradication of defilements. That means greed, hatred, and delusion. And so it was for a Chan Moon, who after the three-month period of the rains retreat each year, made it a rule to head for mountains and forests with a group of houses or a small village nearby where he might go for for his daily food, his alms food. He spent more time in the Northeast region than in any other part of the country. For him, eradicating the defilements was most important. All of his efforts were devoted to this and for the development of the mind. For this purpose, he always preferred seclusion, living and going places alone, with awakening as his sole aim. And later in his life, he, he took on a number of disciples. And, and would travel with them. One of the uh, uh, one of the practices that happened in the forest, as you might imagine, was working with fear. <laughs> and he would he he would, he, he would sometimes I mean, the book is full of these amazing stories where there'd be monks with him who would have a certain fear because people were in, the, in that culture were actually very afraid of spirits often. And they were also naturally afraid of uh, tigers and other wild animals. And so he would sometimes have people do walking meditation outside tiger caves. So this is, they were interested in awakening. (laughs) And so here's, here's a quote. At night, when his mind is attacked by fear, a monk forces himself to do his walking meditation in the open. This is the battle between fear and dharma. If fear is defeated, the mind will be overwhelmed by courage and enjoy profound inner peace. If fear is the victor, it will multiply itself rapidly and prodigiously. So this is, we would say, advanced practice. <laughs> but what's our counterpart of this? Our counterpart is maybe going into a difficult discussion, right? And really saying, I'm not going to go away from that. Or going into a difficult emotion. We're going into something difficult in our lives. or being near something which scares you. Maybe like someone else's illness. And actually saying, I'm going to go there because I'm going to look at the fear that arises in my mind and work with it. And this was a very strong aspect of his practice. I'll just read a little more there. The whole body will be enveloped by both a perspiring heat and a chilling cold and by the desire to pass urine and defecate. That monk will be suffocated by fear and he will look more like a dying than a living man. The threatening roar of a tiger from a nearby place or from far away at the foot of the mountains only serves to increase his already suffocating fear. Direction or distance mean nothing, his only thought being that the tiger is coming to make a meal of him and that he is coming right now. No matter how wide or vast that area might be, he will be hypnotized by his own fear into believing that the tiger knows of no other place to go but the very spot on which he is walking. The passages for recitation to prevent fear disappear. Ironically, what remains is that passage which serves only to increase it. He will thus recite to himself, the tiger is coming, the tiger is coming. <laughs> <laughs> is that the middle way? Not very much like the way? This is advanced practice. So, um, <laughs> Did they lose a lot of months? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I'm not sure why I brought that up. But, <laughs> but uh, in any case, there were, you get the sense that they were out there in a very primal setting, and they really wanted to work with the um, conditions of the mind. Now, um, I'll, I'll take us fast forward to this is a teacher who, who I met, uh, Chan Mahabua. I stayed at his monastery for a while in the ni- early 1990s. This was him as a young man and as an older man. Again, he was a a student of Achan Moon. And in fact, he was the compiler of his uh, biography. Mm -hmm. And one of the great teachers of um, 20th century, and in fact, well into this century. Now, here's Achan Cha. Mm -hmm. Achan Cha, this is him at the end, near the end of his life. And probably in the 1970s. Another picture. Very uh, cheerful guy. Uh, I'll I'll come back to Achan Moon, because he had very important uh, teaching from Achan Moon. So again, he was born into a a farming family in the Northeast. He uh, became a monk when he was in his teens, but went back to help his family. Um, And he was, you know, confused about the right practice. And so he he was drawn to study with Achan Moon. He heard about him, and at that time, uh, they would walk. He would walk to find him. He walked about 400 miles in order to find a Chan Moon, and then only stayed with him for three days. You know, and so he met him, and he he uh, wanted to clear up some confusion he had about some of the um, aspects of being a monk, which he did, and then he got a core teaching, which is really becomes a core teaching of Achan Cha. He got this from Achan Moon. This is really the core teaching of the whole tradition. And that is, uh, he got the teaching that one wants to watch one's mind and notice where there is some kind of grasping or some kind of compulsive aversion. And one wants to see the states of mind as always coming and going. and Where we suffer is when we get stuck with something we really want or something that we have aversion to. And the practice is to actually see that the passing mind-states, emotion-states, body-states keep on happening. And that one finds one's um, home in the awareness of the passing show, in the awareness of the passing state. This is Actually, another way of talking about that teaching of Budo is really, in the Thai Forest tradition, there's a sense that there's what is often called the pure mind. A kind of awareness which is not in itself connected with any particular mind state. But it's the capacity of knowing, of being aware, and that this is actually our link with awakening that we all have. And that the Anacchan Chah got this teaching that there is this pure mind, there's the coming and going of all sorts of different experiences that are impermanent, and that we have to see how we get stuck with some of them in these two main ways. We get stuck by grabbing hold. Oh, I want that. And we get stuck by having aversion. Oh, I don't want that. And this was, this was the core teaching. It's how to, through training, have access to that pure awareness or that pure mind. A little different teaching than we find with the Burmese tradition, right? Uh, but that, that, becomes, that becomes the emphasis. Uh, Achan Moon said, The primal mind is radiant and clear by nature, but is darkened by where we get stuck. He said, the mind is something more radiant than anything else can be. But because counterfeits, passing defilements, come and obscure it, it loses its radiance, like the sun when obscured by clouds. But don't go thinking that the sun goes after the clouds. Instead, the clouds come drifting along and obscure the sun. He so said, that's the analogy for us. We, we think the clouds are everything, right? We often think that, but it's actually the sun which we can get in touch with. And the you know as we'll see with Achan Cha, as with a lot of our practice, a main method is just actually noticing where we get stuck. Having mindfulness of where we get stuck, studying it, and releasing it. And that'll be the core teaching here. Very simple, right? I expressed that in a very short time. Right? That's the core teaching that we get. So Achan Cha got that teaching. He would have been about I don't know, he would have been, I think about in his mid-twenties at that point, maybe maybe a little older. And then he commenced uh, about seven years of very intensive practice. I think he was still wandering. And even though he he becomes um, in a, you know, in his later life, very humorous and mischievous even. he, it's said that he actually also had a quality of a fierce practice. Tremendous determination. And you can see, see that sometimes with his, with his teaching methods. Here are some other images. This is, this is probably late 1960s. So the person on the right is Jack Cornfield as a monk. person in the middle, the tall person, is a Chan Sumedo. He's also uh, a Westerner. And that's Achan Cha sitting down. And um, Achan Sameda was the first Westerner to study with Achan Cha. He came, I think, in 1967. So it was uh, Achan Cha set up a monastery around 1948, 1950. And uh, because, again, the forests were getting cut down, they couldn't have this wandering through the forest anymore because the forests were. And virtually all of the people in this tradition set up monasteries around that time, like Achan Mahabua. They set up monasteries, and they still lived in the forest and became protectors of the forest. In fact, later I met monks who uh, were really active against the deforestation uh, and became activists. There's a whole network of what are called engaged... There's a whole network of engaged uh, monks in Thailand. You know, one monk went so far as to try to protect the forest by ordaining the trees <laughs> as monks. And kind of, a, it worked for a while. You know, it was very interesting. I, I met I met him. He was a very interesting guy. So um, when Achan Cha met Samedo, he had never really met an American. I think the air force base was nearby, but he hadn't really met anyone. He had. He did. He said he did say that before he. Um, had been a monk, he had seen some cowboy movies and seen Americans. He said, they are so big. <laughs> <laughs> and they have kind of funny looking noses, he said. <laughs> you know? And, and he met uh, Achan Semedo. I'll have some pictures of Achan Semedo in a little while. He met Achan Semedo. He says, uh, he met him, and he, and he later said, yeah, I saw you in that movie. Because <laughs> 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 he said Achan Semedo was big. He was like, he's six foot three. Yeah he he was he would have been in his thirties at that time, and the story was achan cha said yeah i i know you i I saw you in that that movie <laughs> you know he said he looked exactly like the person in the movie, kind of you know blondish hair and tall and so forth so here's another image of uh again there's uh yeah so some well-known teachers. I think that uh, second from the right is Mahagosananda, who is who is a great Cambodian monk. He's you know, done a few books. And then next to him, Jack. And then fourth from the left, uh, Christopher Titmus, who some of you know, uh, who is English, who was a monk in Thailand. Here's Aachen Chah, I think on his only trip to the U.S., and he led a retreat at Insight Meditation Society. And that was this one, the one I talked about, I think, uh, a few <coughs> times ago. Uh, Mahasi Sayadaw came, like in May or something, and Achan Cha came in June. And were you there, Maria? Um, I was there with Mahasi Sayadaw, yeah. but I didn't move. Yeah. And I, I got to go to both retreats. And so I got to hang out with Achan Cha. He, he, he actually had a stroke like two years later, so mm-hmm. this was near the end of his teaching career. And he was very funny. He used to go to people doing slow walking meditation at this retreat center and kind of look at them and say, this kind of looks like a mental hospital. <laughs> 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 I hope they're OK. <laughs> you know, so he was, very, he was very humorous. This was the style of his teaching. You can get a sense of it with some of these pictures. Donald, do they not have walking meditation in the Thai forest tradition? They would do walking meditation, but maybe not so slowly. I think not so slowly as we sometimes do it here. Here we do it with this. I think that maybe is more the Burmese emphasis on doing it slowly. In Thailand, they would just walk it. It was more, the whole emphasis in the Thai tradition was be aware, but kind of be natural. You know, follow a natural process. Was he Ajahn Jimeon's teacher too? No, Ajahn Chah, no. No, as far as I know. There's some more pictures. I'll say more about him. And then here's, here's another image with a Chan Sumedho. And here's a Chan Sumedho who's who uh, lives in England, has been, was the abbot of a, one of the branch monasteries. One of Achen Cha was very influential. And in Thailand, I think there are 200 branch monasteries connected with his main monastery. And in the West, I think there are nine, including one at a Bayagiri, called a bayagiri, which is in... What county is that? Mendocino? Mm-hmm. Mendocino County. And you could go up there, and you know, teachers from the monastery come down. You can get the flavor of this, I think, once a month uh, in uh, Berkeley, at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, one, one of the teachers from that tradition will come down and teach. So, And they teach would teach fairly regularly here at Spirit Rock. So this is a semedo And here is another image of... I think... I don't know if this was... This must have been where Jack became a monk for a second time, because I don't think he met Joseph when he was originally a monk. Okay, and I'll just show you a few images of... uh, This is a different monastery. This is Achan Mahabua's monastery. These are some some pictures of my stay there, so you can get a sense of the landscape. Probably 50 years before this, this was 1992, probably 50 years before this, the uh, forest would have covered almost everything there's a lot of deforestation and here you can get a sense this is the main hall people mostly practiced on their own but they would come together you know to be in the main hall for talks and so forth so here's you get a sense of the forest and there were kind of communal um, places to wash oneself have toilets here's very simple here's the toilet there's (laughs) (laughs) There's me a little while ago with my friend in the back. <laughs> okay. And here is uh here this is the cottage I stayed in in the forest. And you can get a sense of it's kind of nice. Yeah. Had a mosquito net and this is my front porch. Were Very only nice. men allowed to come to the monastery? No, there were there were there were room for women at the monastery too. It was actually different in different monasteries. Some you know, like the one with Achan Buddha Dasa was more innovative in that way. Yeah. I think I think at this monastery, it was not for women as far as I know. But others, it was. You know, I think Achan Cha's monastery, there were women there. There were It was possible. And here, you can get a sense, on the weekends, villagers would come. There was a lot of mixing between the monastery and the villagers. You know, there was a lot of teaching for lay people. This was a, a monk that I... I uh, talked a lot with, he was the, an English monk who, um, named Machan Panawato, who um, I would have talked with, he was uh, <coughs> the Westerner who had been the longest time as a monk in Thailand, I think from the 60s, so before Achan uh, Sumedho. I I'll go back to, just have uh, images of Achan Cha and just say maybe a few more words Um, about his about his teaching. And then we'll, we can have a little time for discussion. I'll give more of this next time. The, um, and the, you can see there are differences with the Burmese tradition where the emphasis is so much on meditation. With Achan Cha, the sense of practice was much more communal. It was in a community. There was individual practice, but so much of the practice was doing things with others. Um, and the... The foundation of the practice was uh, being ethical, was a sense of integrity, developing the ethical precepts, and having the, what would be called, right view or right understanding. And meditation was very important, but it was within an integrated framework. And there was an, in, a, in a communal context. So you can really contrast that with our dominant forms. We have some communal aspects, but it's very it's to a large extent we're on our own right and then we do retreats so it's a very we our model is i think maybe more influenced by the burmese approach to intensive practice so there's this was this was the approach so there was there was not any um there's a real emphasis on mindfulness and awareness in whatever you're doing not just in formal meditation and so uh, achan cha tells a story of when he was uh more of an early student. I think he was studying with one of his other teachers named Achan Kinnerly, I think. And he was, at, you know, he was uh, supposed to sew the robe. And Achan Cha said, you know, I was really, uh, I really wanted to finish the sewing of the robe as quickly as I could so I could get to meditation. <laughs> right? and, and he said, you know, he was rushing it and really trying to get through it as quickly as possible. And he talked with his teacher who said, um... um what are you doing? He says, I'm really trying to do this quickly so I can start meditating. Mm-hmm. And uh, Achan Kinnerly said, uh, and, and uh, what are you going to do after you meditate? He said, well, I'll do something else. I'll do this. And then, what do you do after that? And then what do you do after that? What do you do after that? And after a while, Achan Chah got the point. He, and Achan Kinnerly said, you know, I think it's good to make your sewing." the meditation, right, that in your um, attitude towards the sewing, there is craving, there is wanting to get to the meditation, there's a kind of compulsive quality to it, and that's a problem, right? Here, we're interested in looking at where we get stuck, and when you were wanting to get through the sewing, so you could get to the real spiritual work, that's a problem, right? Interesting, right? So he's saying, mindfulness no matter what you do. Mindfulness in every posture. So a lot of practicality. Just be present. Be mindful in all postures. And sometimes, uh, you know, particularly Westerners would really want to do meditation. And so one Westerner, um, uh, not named in the story. Um, There weren't too many of them, so we kind of might know who it is. But Jack tells stories (coughs) like this. One Westerner, he, uh, he didn't want to go to the Dharma talks because they were in Thai. And he didn't understand Thai. He thought, he thought I should just leave and go meditate. That would be a much better use of my time. And so, Achan Cha permitted him to do that. And at the, uh, as he was walking away every evening, he would say, the American will now go and meditate Through <laughs> the whole group. <laughs> You know, and pretty soon he came back because his, his real emphasis was just stay with the schedule, with what's there, and watch your mind. Right? That was the teaching. Watch your mind and um, see where you get stuck. You know? And so if we had to maybe take a practice for next week, it would be that simple practice. You know, he, and Acharya does say, to really be able to do that well, you do need to have the mind be quiet some, right? And so, stabilizing the mind, having the mind be quiet, is important for being able to see where you get stuck. Right? And we need to do that. And so, that would be important, and some degree of concentration would be important, but he really focused radically on developing insight. Particularly into what I'm, my language is, where we get stuck, where we get stuck by wanting or where we get stuck by not wanting. And that's it, you know, and identify more with the awareness that knows, you know, and see things as a passing show. That's a radical teaching. It's a very simple teaching. And maybe I'll end with a quotation, and then we'll, we'll take that up more next time, you know, that particular teaching in a little more depth and detail. But I'll just finish with a, a passage from Achan Cha. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kind of wonderful, all kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Thank you. Please. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had two questions. Sure. I was curious about these farm guys. About the what? uh, These farmers. Yeah. And how did they, did they have some period of being taught about? Why don't we use the microphone again so we can get these on. Um, Yeah, but I'll repeat your question, yeah. Did they have a period of being taught by by other monks before they took off out into the forest, or did they just rely on what they knew from their family? Yeah, it's a good question. and um, The question is, these people coming from farming backgrounds, did they simply go off into the forest, or did they have some earlier education, which gave them, let's say, some foundations? I think it was more like that that they would have, from, from my, my memory of what I've read and heard, that they would have, you know, they would have education in basic, uh, you know, in addition to the basic subjects of the uh, time and culture, they would have some basic uh, training in the, in the fundamentals of Buddhism. They would get some of that in the school and from, and from different teachers. Yeah. So there were monasteries nearby where they'd go and take their vows or whatever. And yeah, there might <laughs> be monasteries nearby or, or, or monks nearby that they could that they could uh, that they, c- they could uh, take their vows for ordination. So it's pretty much throughout the country. You know, essentially almost every village would have a monastery. It's kind of kind of the equivalent of every community has a church, right? Or a synagogue. It's not so different from that. It's you know. And again, the there were there was you know in much of Southeast Asia there'd be this long time, uh, symbiotic relation between lay people and monks or earlier nuns, you know, that they would be supportive. Or, or nuns doing the, the, the other route I mentioned, the Mechi route. They'd be supported by food and sometimes needs by the lay people. It was a very reciprocal. And quite a lot of the teaching was also for the, for the lay people, you know. And I wondered, how did those early Westerners deal with the language problem? How did that work? How did the early Westerners deal with the language problem? Um, one, of, one of the, uh, there two, two things. One, one of the uh, approaches of Achan Cha, especially when, when Achan Sumedo came, because he had had the experience in other monasteries of always getting special dispensation as a Westerner treating him well, maybe giving him the best accommodations, all that (laughs) sort of stuff. And Chan Cha said, you have to do everything the way we do it here. You know, and and eventually they learned the language, right? They, they, but uh, initially they, you know, they would go to the talks and they wouldn't know what he was saying. But they, you know, I think, I think Jack, I'm not sure, did he do his uh, Peace Corps work in Thailand? So he would have, some of them would have known the language. He would have known the language. Achand Samedo, uh, he was in the Peace Corps. I don't, I forget which, was he in Thailand? I don't know. But uh, I'm not, so some of them knew the language, but a lot of them had to learn it, right? You know, that monk who said, I can't understand language, I don't want to go to the talks, I want to just meditate, <laughs> obviously didn't. So they, they, would, uh, they would accommodate and, and learn the language, yeah. But let's use the microphone. Was that, you have to, have, yeah, yeah, that might not have been on when, yeah. Is it on? No. 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 If there's one at the bottom. Yeah, I just turned that. It's on, uh, it's at the so I don't know it. Because it, Does it make a sound it when you click? Is it on? Oh. No. 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 I'll repeat the question then. Okay, okay. sorry. Um, Let's see. Hello yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Donald, I'm wondering what about when you went to Thailand to yeah. s- to, in the language, and what about if one were to go now, would there be translators or there would were, there were probably yeah, um, you, you would want to choose which monastery you went to that what I forgot to mention was that eventually there were so many Westerners coming to study with A Chah that they set up a western branch of the monastery, in which English was the primary language. Mm-hmm. And so the language issues were not there. When I, and, and at uh, the monasteries I stayed at, for example, when I stayed at the uh, Monastery of Chan Mahabua, um, you know, the talks were in Thai. I went, <laughs> listened, <laughs> kind of took in the vibes, <laughs> and didn't understand a word. <laughs> You know, but uh, I would be able to talk with uh, a Chan Panawato, whose image I showed earlier, and he would. You know, I would talk with him, so I would be oriented by him. And at other monasteries, there was typically some people who spoke English. At a, at a Chan Buddha's Dasa's monastery, there were quite a few. There was a branch of the monastery, with um, uh, which which was uh, led by. Um, uh, a Westerner named uh, Biku Santikaro, who who has become a friend and now lives in Wisconsin, and uh, so he you know he was uh, their language wasn't an issue, so it mostly wasn't an issue, except that I couldn't hear and understand the talks obviously when they were given in Thai, and I couldn't necessarily speak directly with the teachers. Right. Yeah. Maybe time. Anyone else have a question, reflection, comment? Oh, please. Um, is that a question about the term Rains Retreat? Yeah. I'll repeat it. Is a question about the term Rains Retreat? Yeah. Uh, could you explain what that is? I've heard it before. Yeah. Uh, range Retreat is uh, a tradition um, going back, I, I believe, to the time of the Buddha. Uh, coming partly out of the weather patterns of uh, South and Southeast Asia, you know, in the monsoon rains, and, and also giving people uh, a chance for uh, dedicated practice. And so it would typically be a time, I think typically it would be in the uh, summer, and they would uh, not, uh, not have their traditional practice, and they would, uh, for several months, they would do more dedicated, more intensive practice. Okay, please. maybe time for one or two more. We're giving you a workout <laughs> Hi. Oh, um. I'll repeat the questions yeah, and uh, anyway, um. put it close to your mouth Hello yeah. hi oh. um i w- I wanted to ask about uh, some of the effects of deforestation. I know that in northeastern Thailand that the um, habitat of the tigers and the pandas yeah. uh, kind of. Has there been other... Um, I guess that affects the tiger meditation when you're dealing with fear. Uh, maybe some people didn't miss that one. Um, but did you see any other uh, effects of deforestation when you were over there? Well, it was... Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's everywhere. You know, and it was, it was scary. I mean, one of the... I, I remember once I took an all-night bus ride from... Um, Chiang Mai to Udon Tani, you know, it's going from one monastery to another. And I would go through the, um, I would go through the, some of the mountains between, you know, between those two places. Let's see. Um... Okay, so you see uh, Chiang Mai in the north and then Udon Tani a little bit southeast of that. Uh, There are mountains between there. It actually looks like it goes almost through parts of Laos. And I remember that bus ride. Um, Well, uh, a good part of the trip, the forests were burning. In the middle of the night, it was a quite an image. It was like an apocalyptic image, apocalyptic image of being on, on this bus, you know, at two or three in the morning. You know, almost everyone being asleep or silent, and looking out and seeing the forest burning. Was that to clear it? It was to clear, well, yeah, to clear it, yeah, clear the forest. And there also some of the motivation was to, you know, make money from the trees, obviously. Um, yeah, it 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 made impossible the way of life of the wandering monk. Yeah, mo- most of the, certainly the larger, a lot of the larger wild animals were no longer seen much. You know, I think I've, I've heard of some of the Thai, you know, some of the teachers remarked, yeah, with, we, and, and so for many of the um, Thai, uh, many of these monasteries actually became uh, forest uh, preserves. They were actually uh, protected the forest because around the monastery they, they wouldn't, wouldn't be cut. So, yeah, it was, um, it was a major, major development. It happened, I think, very, very quickly, starting in the mid-50s, in part with uh, uh, U.S. Um, interest in having Thailand be a so-called developed country, you know, and change the economy, and have a, you know, have, have moved to a cash economy and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, I remember uh, Sulak Savaraksha once told me that uh, the American advisors in the 50s said that uh, you have a big problem with the uh, Thai people in terms of development. Um, they're too content. They don't want a different way of life. You have to make them discontented. Anyway, so we we're interconnected <laughs> with what happened there. And in many ways, yeah, the, so again, it led the um, uh, Thai forest tradition, starting in the 1950s, to be based in monasteries. And as I mentioned, it also led some of the later monks to become activists for the forest. You know, and, and I think of one person I met there, uh, Prape Paisan, who was an abbot of a monastery. I think, uh, I think uh, I think like six hours northeast of Bangkok. Uh, he was abbot of a monastery, and he would be abbot of the monastery for six months. and then another six months, he would do um, <coughs> basically environmental workshops and trainings for people all around the country. And so he was, you know, he was really combining, you know, deep meditation, being part of a community, with responding to what was happening. I, I found his example, and there were some others like that, very, very inspiring, you know, and to meet him, and he's, you know, he, he's st- still very much in, in touch with kind of this network of people. You know, he's probably, you know, he was, he's probably in his 50s or... At the, old, at the oldest, maybe 60 or so right now. Yeah. Okay. Um, interesting, huh? Yes. Yeah. Did you, yeah. Do you like getting this history like yeah. this? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And next time I'll focus more on the teachings, okay? I, I, I'm going to have very few images, <laughs> maybe just a few to get our sense of the people. And what my suggestion is that you um, work with what might have inspired you from the teachings that I mentioned. It could be, you know, if there was something that you resonated with, you know, it might be, there's something a little scary in my life. I want to uh, face it. I want to work with it, you know, and bring the sense of having the support of this tradition, this lineage to that. Or it could be, I want to really, you know, develop my, have my practice, my daily practice, have some degree of quiet, and then really look out for a moment of stuckness, or a moment of what we call suffering, you know, where there's reactivity. Really look out for that and investigate it. Not trying to get rid of it. We're trying to see it. Notice it. What are the roots? You know, and study it, see if we can look into it. That's the practice. And see if you can also, another, maybe i back up, another uh, aspect of the teachings might be to really see if you can Take on as you know your most precious aspect your awareness and your knowing quality. And see that as more primary and see everything else as passing. So you can another practice would be to tune into how things are continually changing. Yeah. So that could be another practice. So see if one of those resonates with you. And I'll invite you maybe just right now to set an intention for. If, if this was interesting, inspiring, energizing, how might you like to work with this practice in the next week? It's maybe just a slight adjustment to your everyday practice. And then some of you may want to f- look, find a book about Chan Cha. They're in the bookstore, or um, some wonderful books uh, S- A Still Forest Pool, wonderful book. And um, another one, Everything Arises, Everything Falls Away. These are collections of his teachings. You might find that, or you might actually go on the website Dharma Seed, and uh, there are uh, some wonderful. Uh, recordings Uh, I listened in preparation for today to most of a day long that was given at Spirit Rock uh, I don't know, five or six years ago by Achan Pasano a a westerner, Canadian who was the abbot of the monastery of Ayagiri. he gave a whole day of recollections of Achan Cha and they're so much fun and you can listen to them and hear these stories also, because aren't the stories the essence of it? They stay with us, you know. So that's another way to have some nourishment. There is a wonderful online resource. If you just uh, uh, click in or get in Achan Cha, there's a website <coughs> which uh, which has almost his entire teachings all right there online, along with a lot of images and so forth. So. If you, if you were inspired and want to know more and <clears throat> have a little bit of the experience I've had these last few weeks of immersing myself in this, it's, it's really been uh, quite wonderful. So I invite that. So thank you. And may our practice, as usual, be offered for the benefit of ourselves and of all others. Thank you for listening.